At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Newish. Everything's changed, have you? Where we're celebrating that in Christ, we have been given new life. The only question is, are you living it? Let's turn to Romans chapters five through seven to decipher whether we're living in Christ's freedom or trapped in the patterns of our old life. This morning, I wanna encourage you to take out your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five. We're gonna begin looking in verse one today. And um, as you're turning there, I'm very excited about uh, getting a chance to dive into Romans uh, together. From now until November, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter five through uh, chapter eight. And I'm so excited about uh, just this, this passage and this book because Paul gives us the opportunity to dive deep into the greatest news of all time. Like the greatest news of all time, Paul is going to expound it before us and we're gonna be able to see the beauty of this great news. The question should be on your mind is, well, what is this great news? What's the great news that Paul is gonna talk about? Well, think about in your life right now, what would be the greatest news that you could hear? For some, it might be that the Lions win the Super Bowl. Right? That would be amazing news, right? I mean, I would be so over. I would take to the streets and I would yell to the top of my lungs like I'm so excited after all these years of the pain and the suffering and all of that would finally pay off. That would be amazing, right? Well, Paul's news is even better than that. Maybe you're here and you're like, the greatest news would be a new child or a new grandchild, right? Wouldn't you be excited about that? You're like, yes, we finally got, a, I got another child. We got a baby. I can't wait to be so excited. You want to tell everybody. Right? That's great news, right? Well, Paul's news is better than that. And maybe you're here and you're like, the greatest news that I could ever hear right now is that there's a cure for cancer. That's great news. That would be amazing news to know that cancer is cured. But guess what? Paul's news is even better than that. Paul's news, the greatest news of all time, the greatest message of all time, Paul refers to in chapter one of Romans as the gospel. The gospel is the greatest news of all time. For what is the gospel? The gospel is God's unfolding plan to bring peace between a sinful, rebellious man and a holy and righteous God. This is the greatest news of all time. We know in our hearts, God has designed us to know that there is a God. And we are designed to know that we are accountable to this God. And we also know that in our hearts, there's nothing that we can do to achieve or to reach this God. We all have a desperate need for salvation and we know it and we feel it and we pursue our lives trying to find that satisfaction, that peace, that salvation. And so many people are looking so many different ways to find that peace. And that was our a series in Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes, as we walk through, it said, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything you find under the sun is going to lead to futility. But today we get a chance for the next few weeks to unfold this beautiful message of the gospel. This message is redemption. This message is the cure. This message is all that we desperately need. 
And the truth is, is when the gospel comes to grip our hearts, it changes everything. When we believe and place faith in the gospel, it changes everything. We become new from the inside out. So when we become a believer, when we can begin to believe in this gospel, we take on a new identity. And so what Paul is, is glorying in in this, in this book is the gospel itself. He wants, us, wants to explain it from top to bottom so that we may fully understand it. And what Paul is doing is he's actually writing at this time, he's writing to a group of new believers that were in the city of Rome or in the region of Rome. And these new believers are trying to figure out how to live out their faith in this gospel in a new way. You see, not only does God give them a new identity, but he also gives them a new way of living it's kind of like now that they have this new life, they, they used to be uh, completely segregated, right? Their whole life was, was all about divisions. There was um, deep divisions within this culture. There were two groups, two racial groups, right? In the time, there was the Jew and the Gentile. That was it. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. And those two groups hated each other. They never got along. There was also groups of, of slave and free people, and those two groups didn't get along. And then there was the division between genders. There was the men and women, and men were superior, and women were inferior. There were poor, and there were rich, and it seemed as though all culture and all society at this time was seeking to divide people and get them just to cluster in groups that were just like themselves. Sound familiar? They were politically divided. They were racially divided. There was so much division. And yet Paul is writing to them, encouraging them about their new identity. He's, he's like, you're no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female. You are now a new thing. You are a follower of Jesus. You are a Christian. You are a child of God. So there's no more division. And I love what Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Right? I'm not afraid of it. I'm not ashamed of it. For in the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Right? This is the leveling the field. He's saying this power of the gospel of salvation is to everyone. So everyone has access to it. Anyone who believes can be a part of this new family, which is the next part. This is God of salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. So he's kind of giving us this, this idea that in life, not only are you divided among other people, but in life, what we're going to see here, our greatest division is between us and a holy God. So not only are we divided from God, we can't have access to God. We have no, no ability to have a relationship with God because of our, our sin. And because of our sin, we also have no ability to have true relationships with other people. Because we're just divided. And so the truth of the gospel is that there's a cure for both the vertical relationship between us and God and the horizontal relationship between us and others. And so as these new believers were a part of this new family with their new identity, they struggled in the awkwardness of this. Because just imagine, just for a second, the, the awkwardness of this new family, right? Like yesterday, this guy over here was a slave and he was a Gentile. 
And this guy over here was a Jew and he was rich. Didn't get along. But this person places faith in Jesus. This person places faith in Jesus. And guess what? They're now brothers. Awkward, right? Two days ago, they hated each other. Now they love each other. And so they're living in this awkwardness. I've had the beautiful ability over the past two years to help my, uh, two of my children learn how to drive. <laughs> yes, bless me, and that's why I'm bald and have gray hair. But it's interesting to see my children, as they're learning how to drive, walk in this awkwardness. Right? They've lived their whole life riding in cars. Up until this point, they've ridden in cars, they know where it's supposed to go, they know acceleration, they know all that, but now they're behind the wheel with a new identity, right, in a new place. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to watch them. And you remember, too, when you learned how to drive, right? Everything was kind of awkward to you. You didn't know going into a curb if you're supposed to, when you're supposed to brake and then coming out of it, when to accelerate. And, and as you're coming into a stop uh, stoplight, you don't know when to brake. And so sometimes it's a little early, sometimes it's a little bit late. And so it's just, it's just awkward, right? But those of you that have been driving for many, many years now, Maybe you're like me. Sometimes you get home and you're like, how did I just get home? You ever had that experience? <laughs> right? You're no longer thinking about it. You just, it just naturally flows from you because you've been doing it for so long. And this is where Paul wants us to get. Paul wants us to get to that point of where all of this stuff, we take on this new identity and we embrace it and we live in it. But he's saying right now, I know it's awkward. It's awkward because it's brand new to you. You don't know how to live in, in, in this new relationship. And you're constantly living in the pressures of going back to your old ways of living. Right? You you're constantly have to monitor yourself against going against these, um, I, these feelings of bias, these feelings of prejudice, these feelings of division and old behaviors. And so Paul's like, I, I, I get it, but here, embrace, learn, understand what this gospel is. And live in it. And so in this, under the gospel, there are only two groups. And I'm going to phrase it this way because I think the way that we understand this really changes the way. Because the world wants to divide, right? The world wants to say, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm good, you're evil. If you're with me, you're with me. But if you're against me, you think differently than me, then you're the enemy. That is an anti-gospel view. Instead, when we look at the gospel, there are only two groups. There's one group, the first group, is the group that has been saved. Right? It's the group that has been saved. And the second group is the group that is in need of salvation. Do you see how that changes the way we view people? Some people would say, well, there's two groups. There's the saint, and then there's the sinner. I want us to get away from that view. Yes, this group over here is groups of, a group of people that is, um, still has sinned and, and violates God's commands and all that other stuff. And yes, these people over here are on the trajectory towards be, becoming a saint. But when we think about it in that perspective, what happens is we want it to be us and them. Right? Like the saint is good and the sinner is bad. And by changing our understanding of those who have been saved... And those who are in need of salvation, it changes our perspective. Because it reminds us that we once were here, 
right? I was a sinner in need of salvation. And one glorious day, by the grace of God, he granted me the gift of faith, and I believed in Jesus. And when I believed in Jesus, I immediately went into this group of being saved. But that doesn't mean I'm done. It doesn't mean that I can sit back on my salvation and sit and soak and sour in my salvation, Right? He's saved me because there's still this population that still needs to be saved. And he's given me breath in my lungs so that I can spend my life loving people into the gospel, not seeking to divide. Those that do not yet believe are not the enemy. Hear this, church. Because if we were to go doing some scanning into your social media posts and to some of the conversations you've had, I don't think some of the things that have been said would have believed that. Right? We're so quick to want to divide. And instead, we should be people of compassion. So under the gospel, there are two groups. And from God's perspective, another way of looking at these two groups, it is one group are, is those that are new and those that need to be made new, right? Because remember what God has says. God, God has a desire that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's God's heart. That's God's desire. But he also knows not everyone will be saved. But it's his desire. God wants and desires for all men to be saved and come through a knowledge of the truth. So there are two groups. There is the I am new group and the group that I need to be made new. Now there's a shocking trend within the church today that wants to push for a third group. And this is what I hope to push back against as we walk through this sermon series together. So there's a group that's new and the group that needs to be made new, but there's this third group that I would like to entitle called the newish group. Newish, right? Not quite kind of new, but they're kind of newish. And I want us to understand that this newish group is not actually a new group, but it's really a group that still needs to be saved. But this is what it looks like in the church for this newish group. Right? This newish group comes in and they see and they hear and they understand the benefits of Jesus. They understand that, that, that he wants to save them of their sins and bring peace between them and God. And they kind of embrace that. But then they also see the things of this world and they want to embrace that as well. And so they're living in tension. They know the truth and yet they know the world and they want both. It can't be that way. Jesus didn't come and die on a cross so that you could be newish. Jesus came so that you could be healed. So that you could be made new from the inside out. And this is what I want us to see as we walk through this series together. So as we walk through this series, the purpose of this series is threefold. First, I want you on a weekly basis as you come and you hear to test yourself, to see if you are new. Every week, come in with a, maybe I'm not new. Maybe I'm not new. Maybe there's still something that's missing. Okay, let's test ourselves and see if we are in the truth. Second, I want to help us uh, embrace our new identity more. Like maybe over the course of this series, you're like, yes, I am new. I know that I'm new. I know that I, I'm in Christ. But yet there are things that have been brought in from your past. Maybe there's prejudice. Maybe there's, there's feelings. Maybe there's behaviors that you've adopted in your life that go against this new identity. 
So I want us to embrace that. And then third, I pray that this series helps us articulate the gospel so that we can more clearly share it with those who have yet to be made new. Right, again, the purpose of this is so that you can share it with others. So the series is for the skeptic. It's for the one that still hasn't yet believed yet, to, to, still trying to figure out like this God and Jesus and how they all fit together. That's what the series is for. But then the series is also for us as a believers. I want to encourage you to use this series as an opportunity to invite your family and friends and coworkers. Like every single week, you're like, hey, I'm going to church this Sunday. You want to come with me? I know you'll be challenged. I know you'll be encouraged. I know you've been having questions about, about God and all this. Come with me to church and hear from God's word. Or maybe after a sermon, you hear the sermon, you're like, you know, my friend really needs to hear this. Share the Facebook uh, live stream of it. Share the podcast of it. But let us not just take the message that God has given us and just sit on it. For the next few weeks, we're gonna look at the glory of the gospel and we're gonna be reignited about it. All right, let's look. Romans chapter five. We're gonna begin in verse one. And any serious Bible scholar, when you come to the scripture, there are certain words that you read that should cause you to pause. And right at the beginning of verse one is one of those words. It's the word therefore. So Bible scholars, Bible study students, when you come to the word of God, the question you must ask when you see this word therefore is what is it there for? Right? Why, why is this word here? And typically what happens, all the time what happens, is that the writer has been giving an argument or moving in a specific direction. And after they get to the point, they'll, they'll say, therefore, having said all of this, now this is how it has implication into your life. And this is exactly what Paul is doing here. So we're diving right into chapter 5 realizing that there are four chapters that have gone before this where Paul is unfolding the gospel before us. And so in order to understand what we're gonna learn today, we need to understand what has been said prior to this. So I'm gonna give you a very, very brief overview of chapters one through four, which are very, very deep, which I would encourage you if you have time today or sometime this week to read chapters one through four and be amazed at the beauty and the glory of the gospel and the work of Jesus. So back in chapter one, the first thing that we, one of the first things that we learn is that the gospel is Jesus. That Jesus is the gospel. That Jesus has actually, he is the message of the gospel. He has done the work of the gospel. And this gospel message, this gospel of Jesus was promised beforehand in scripture. That God has had this plan to redeem sinful man from before eternity past. So in, in essence, that, that day that Adam and Eve stepped into life and chose to sin, willfully disobey God's design, God was not shocked. God was hurt, but God was not shocked. God knew that man would rebel. God knew that man would sin and man would be in need of salvation. So God always had a provision for man's sin. And that provision was Jesus. It always has been. And then we see going on that this, this gospel, this power of God for salvation is offered to anyone who will believe. It doesn't matter the color of the skin. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. There's no one that is beyond the grip of grace. But then we move on and we see that man has rejected God continually. 
that all mankind is guilty and worthy of God's wrath because they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The, the Bible tells us in, in Romans 1 and, and into 2 that, uh, that we as created beings knowing that know there is a God. It's written on our hearts and yet we reject him and we rather worship created things than our creator. We see that man is wicked to his core. And because of sin, there is no one righteous. It doesn't matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile, there's no one that is righteous. Jews that try to observe the Mosaic law, that's not saving them. They're still in desperate need of salvation. And Gentiles, non-Jewish people that try to follow the internal moral law, that doesn't save them either. So the gospel has to be a decisive move from God himself to save humanity. And he saves humanity through Jesus Christ. By his blood, by his sacrifice, by his death, his burial, and his resurrection, redemption comes to all those who believe. And he goes on in chapter three to talk about salvation. The salvation is by faith in Jesus alone. But it's only by faith. It's not by our works. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation, but it's by God's grace. And that salvation by faith makes everyone who believes in Jesus a child of Abraham. In essence, what he's saying, we're all part of the same family. So the gospel makes the ground level for everyone. Doesn't matter if you're male, female, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, we're all equal. And so then we get to Romans chapter five. And Romans chapter five, this therefore is saying, having said all that about the gospel, now this now has implication into our lives. And so over the next few weeks, we're gonna be taking a look at the vertical relationship between us and God and the horizontal relationship between us and others and how the gospel brings peace to both of those. So primarily today, we're gonna look at this vertical relationship between us and God and how the gospel brings peace. But here's the big idea for today that God only saves bad people. How does that sit with you? God only saves bad people. Another way of saying that God can't save good people. Now how many here are like, that statement is both deeply refreshing and deeply offensive, right? It should be at the same time, right? Because we are constantly living in a world where we sit on our throne and we constantly judge all the time. Right? We are judges. We want to judge what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. And we do it without even noticing it we're doing it. And we always want to be the good. We always want to be the good. And anyone that thinks differently than us is always the bad, is always the evil. But guess what? God says he can only save bad people. But that's good because scripture tells us that everyone is a sinner. That's hard for us to hear and it's hard for us to believe because we live in a world right now where sin continually wants to be diminished. Sin continually wants to have an excuse for it. Or sin, we even want, we take our sin or violation of God's law and we want to legalize it. We want to legislate immorality. And it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how much as, as life we want to make things right. We want to minimize. Sin is sin. And when we get to the point of realizing that we are wicked in our hearts, that's the beginning part of where the gospel can be received. 
But it's not until. A person cannot be saved and made right before God until they begin to realize that they are bad, that they are sinful, and that they are evil. Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 18, 10 through 18, is summarized by this. Paul says, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You're like, I'm not a sinner. I am not that bad. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Have you ever told a lie? You're a sinner. Have you ever gone over the speed limit? You're a sinner. I know that's not popular. I'm sorry. But I'm not here to tickle your ears and make you feel good. You are wretched apart from Christ. You are in need of salvation apart from Christ. There is no hope for you. And so yet we live in a world where people want to say, I'm not that bad, it's okay. Whereas though we live as though there's some cosmic scale that says if I do more good in my life than I do bad, then somehow I'm going to be made right with God. That is a lie from the pit of hell. We're all wretched and desperate need of a salvation. I'm a sinner. Though on Sunday morning it's easy for me to stand before you and, and look like I got my life all together but I'm sinful. And the only thing that makes me different is there was a moment in my life where I realized my sin and I looked at Jesus as a savior and I said, Jesus, take my wretchedness. I want to follow you all of my life because you are worthy of all of me. Because here's the next thing. Not only can someone cannot be saved until they realize that they are bad and sinful. You cannot be saved and be made new and be made right if you still think that you can fix yourself. These are two hard realities that we must come to understand. And this newish group that comes in, this newish group comes in and they say, well, the gospel says, work harder, be better. Right? That's what the gospel's about. The gospel's about Jesus loving me and saving me, but then you've got to work harder and you've got to be better. If you find yourself in sin, then just change your behavior. Right? Work harder. Change it. Like if you find yourself struggling in something, then like dismantle everything. And that's at the heart is anti-gospel as well. For the gospel itself makes people new from the inside out. And so with the remaining time that we have together, I want us to walk through the first few verses of Romans chapter five, and I want us to see the benefits of God's salvation of sinners. What are the benefits that come our way when we believe in Jesus Christ? Look at me in verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace into which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
So what we see is the first benefit is war has ended and access is granted. I want, I want us to walk through this. These prepositions and some of the, the words that, that Paul uses are very, very meaningful and they have deep implications. So we've already talked about the word therefore, right? But then he goes on, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've been justified. What, what does that word mean? Well, the, the word justified or justification, I like to uh, give it the definition of it's just as though I never sinned. Right? Justification is a legal term. Right? Where we have the understanding of throughout my life, as I live my life, there's this growing rap sheet of all of my sin. So the time that I lied, the time that I stole, the time that I had a lustful thought, the time that I sped, all of those things are on this growing, 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 growing rap sheet. And when we bring that grow, growing rap sheet before the Lord, he says, you are guilty. You are guilty and you are worthy of punishment. Though I love you, you're still worthy of punishment because you have sinned. Justification is the process by which that rap sheet gets covered by the blood of Jesus. It's as though it never happened. So even though you've sinned, it's the de- declaration of being made right, being made uh, guiltless, being made sinless. Since we have been justified, right? This justification just doesn't go to everybody. This justification is a clarifier here. You can be justified, how? By faith. It is faith that justifies us. And and then you say, well, what's my faith in? Is my faith in myself? No. Is my faith in a political party? No. Is my faith in my riches? No. Where does your faith need to be? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus, it is our faith in Jesus that allows us to have the opportunity to be justified. And by being justified, we therefore can have peace with God. You follow me there? The only way to have peace with God is through faith in Jesus. This is amazing it's also important to notice when this justification takes place. For some have, have taken this verse and, and tried to understand that, that justification takes place over time. There, there are some within religious circles that will say justification is like a moving target, that you, uh, you're justified when you do right. Well, that's not what it's saying. If you look at the tense, it's since we have been justified by faith. It's a, a moment that takes place in the past for a believer. That's also a moment that takes place in a moment when you become a believer, right? Justification is a momentary action that comes at the moment of salvation. It's not something that you continue to earn. It's not something you gain. It's not something that ebbs and flows or comes and goes. Justification is a reality that happens at the moment of salvation. You're like, well, he's bringing us peace. Well, what's the war? What's, what's the war that's going on? Why is this such a big deal? Well, in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, we see the war. In verse 28, it says this, And since then we did not see fit to acknowledge God. This is all humanity. All humanity did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them over to a debased mind to do what, they, what ought not be done. 
So they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I love that one. I get this mental picture of a of, of, of person that's going into their bedroom at home that is just sitting around thinking to myself, how can I invent evil? Right? What can I do next that's going to be bad and, and do harm to someone? Right? This, is, this is crazy stuff. So they're inventors of evils. They're disobedient to their parents. Listen, children. They're foolish. They're faithless. They're heartless. They're ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decrees that, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Is that not an indication of what we see in our world today? Lord, have mercy on us. We see here, we know God's righteous decrees. We know that we deserve to die because we've done all these things and yet we want to give approval to those that practice these things. This is the way of the world. But the beauty is, is that living like this separates us from God. There's no way that we can be made right with God apart from Jesus. For what did Jesus do? Jesus came and lived a perfect life so that on the cross, he could take on our punishment. He could take on all of the sin of the world and pay the penalty because he was sinless. And through his death on the cross and his resurrection, God's hostility ends towards those that believe. Those that place their faith in Jesus now have peace with God. And the beauty of this peace comes that it doesn't change based on how we feel. This peace is objective, that no longer is God against you. No longer does God come to you and say, what did you do? He comes to you and says, I am pleased with you. And then verse two goes on, this gives us the beautiful, not only do we have peace with God, but gives us a second benefit. It says, through Jesus, we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. We have peace with God and we have unlimited access to God. There's now nothing standing in the way of us knowing and being known by this amazing God. The war is over. No longer do we have to rebel and fight against God, but we can live in peace. You know, in all wars, there's always like the right side and there's the evil side, right? And we always, in our hearts and minds, want to be on the, the side of righteousness, and we don't want to be on the evil side. But what Paul is telling us here is that we all were evil dictators. We were the enemy. And the beautiful story of the gospel is this. The hero dies for the villain. Do you get that? You and I are the villain in the story. You and I are the enemy. And God comes through Jesus and he saves us as the hero comes in to save the villain. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is what our world so desperately needs to hear we as evil people have gone against God and we have done evil to those that were made in the image of God. And guess how God fought the battle? God fought the battle, not with anger, not with injustice, but God fought the battle with grace and love 
and sacrifice. Jesus came and did all the work so that we can come to the place where the war is over when we sign an unconditional surrender. Where we come to him and we say, look at what I've done, I see what you've done, and I know I'm not worthy of that, but thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. And when we sign over that unconditional surrender, there is peace. But unlike in the worldly world, when the war is over, sometimes there's peace, but usually the peace comes with the one that wins, those that lose become the slave. Right? That's how it happens. Like if you, if you win a war, those who you beat, you, you, the people that lost become the slaves. And the, the owner, the things that the slaves own, guess what? Become the spoils of the victor. Well, in God's way, it's completely different. When you lose the war and you surrender, guess what you get? You get to become a child of God. Not a slave, but a child of God. And then guess what you get? You get all the benefits of God because you have complete access to him. This is an amazing thing that is so too often we read scripture and we're like, oh yeah, that's really, really nice. No, this is life-changing, history-making, eternity-shattering news that is good. We're no longer at war. The second benefit is that suffering has misfired and hope is alive. Look at me in verse 3. Not only that, like as though verses one and two were not amazing enough, he goes, and not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You should be reading this and being like, what? That's not how it works in the world. Like, how is it possible to rejoice and have suffering at the same time? These two words do not go hand in hand, but they do when it comes to our faith. I love how Romans chapter 12, verse 2, how it puts Jesus in perspective of balancing both those. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Perfectly balancing together both of sacrifice and suffering and joy at the same time. You see, Jesus understood that suffering needed to take place to pay the penalty of sin, but he also knew the joy of what it would accomplish. And so both at the same time, But you see, suffering is one of those things. Suffering has been used by the devil for centuries to keep humanity in bondage. Suffering is a tool from Satan to keep people in bondage. And this is how he does it. Right? Something bad happens to you in your life and your first question is, or your first thought is, how could a good God allow this to happen? Right? When we begin to question the goodness of God as a result of our suffering, do you want to know why suffering happens? Suffering happens because we're sinful, and sin has consequences. 
right? We don't go through life scot-free. You do bad things, bad things happen, and then it gets collateral damage. Not only do you feel the effects of sin, but your children feel the effects of your sin, and their children feel the effects of your sin, and we wonder why there's so much suffering in the world, because we sin. It's not Jesus' fault. It's our fault. And so Satan wants us to believe that suffering keeps us in bondage because it causes us to bring into question the goodness of God. But here we see how that device misfires because right here we see both of them working together. All of this happens together. Now we rejoice in our suffering. Suffering is a part of life. We will experience the results of our own sin and the sins of others, and yet it will cause us to suffering. But in God's way of looking at it, because of the cross, our suffering is not our undoing. On the contrary, our suffering produces a chain of virtue. Do you see this? We rejoice in our suffering knowing that our suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. So we see this beautiful chain of suffering, endurance, character, and hope. God allows suffering to happen in our lives so that we may be made strong. So that we may be made right. So that our faith may be tested and we may produce hope. It's just like in the natural world, right? If you were to take a, a clump of carbon and you were to expose that carbon to intense pressure and extreme heat over the course of time, what's it, what does it produce? A diamond, right? God is in the process of developing within us character and virtue. And it happens through our own suffering. But then in verse five, he goes on and says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Look at the results of hope. The result of our hope through walking through this process, what is the byproduct of all of that? No shame. There is no shame. Shame disappears. You remember what was the first byproduct of sin? Remember Adam and Eve were in the garden. They violated God's law. They ate of the fruit. And what did they first experience? Their eyes were open. They saw their nakedness and they felt shame. Shame. Shame is not from the Lord. Shame is from the devil. And we live in it and we try to fix it and we try to cure ourselves from it, but we can't. The only cure to your shame, guess what? is believing in Jesus and allow him to work through these things through you so that you may have hope. And when you have hope, you have no shame. So he cures the curse. What a beautiful thing. It's a complete switch in the relationship. Instead of hearing your father look at you with a condemning way of saying, what did you do? Instead, he looks at you and says, I'm pleased with you. Do you know God? in this way? Do you know him as a loving father? Or do you still see him as an evil judge that wants to condemn you? And lastly, we see in verse six and following that Jesus' death reconciles us and his life will get us home. Look with me in verse six. He says, for a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even die. 
But God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the question is, who did Jesus die for? He didn't die for the good person. He didn't die for the person that's trying to live a moral life. Jesus died for the one that was weak. And he did it in the right time and in the right way. Jesus died for the ungodly. And he, then he goes on and says, you know, we, sometimes someone might die for someone that's give their life for someone that has done right. But no one in their right mind would give their life for someone that's done evil. He says, but God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is not wanting you to make your life right. He's not waiting for you to clean your life up to come to him. He wants you to come to him in all of your sin and your shame because he died for you in the midst of that. He gave his life for us. So God only saves bad people. He only saves those that realize that they are in need of him. And then in verse nine and following, we see all of the work that he's done to make us justified. Look, just listen to this and marvel in the work of the Lord. He says, since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, meaning Jesus' blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. I wanna break this down and help you see the marvelous work of Christ on our behalf. We were justified. We were made right by his blood. We have been saved from wrath, God's wrath. We have been reconciled by his death and saved by his resurrection. Through Christ, we are reconciled. Do you see the work that God has done on our behalf for our salvation? In that passage, what does it say that you do? Where's your part in all of that? Does it say that you woke up in the morning and you tried to live a good life? I went to church every single Sunday and I gave to the poor. I got involved in the life group and I, and I did all these things. I gave everything that I had away to the poor. Is that what it says? No, it says God has done all of these things. That is his work in you and your part is faith. Your part is faith. That's what we do. God, I trust that you have done this on my behalf. I trust that you have done and are doing all of these things. But you know the cool thing about gift, or the cool thing about faith? That even faith is a gift from God. Don't believe me? Read Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. Even our faith is a gift from God. So it's all the work that God has done on our behalf so that we may be saved. And I don't understand why people do not want this glorious message. I cannot understand. I cannot fathom that someone would want to walk away from this beautiful truth. That God has done all of the work to bring us peace with God. I pray today that you have experienced that peace with God. If you're here today and you're like, I don't have that peace with God, I want you to know before you leave today, you can have that peace. After we're done here, please come by and see me and say, Pastor, I need to know how to be saved. I need to know how to have this peace with God. And I'll walk you through that even further. But for many of us, we know this peace. But it's possible that we've forgotten the beauty and the benefits of this peace. 
You know, it's possible in our lives. You know, at one time, the gospel was the most glorious message because we knew we were sinners in need of salvation and we accepted it with joy and it filled our lives with such peace. But then life started to happen and we become a little bit callous to the message and our hearts become a little bit hard to it. And it's no longer the most glorious message of all time. It's just another thing that we say. It's just another thing that we do. And it's possible for you to be sitting here today and you've been a part of the church your whole life and you accepted the, the gospel with joy and now your heart is so callous. If that's you, I pray you come back to the Lord today and say, Lord, take the surgical scalpel to my hardened heart and peel away, slice away those calluses so that you may once again reveal the tenderness of my heart so that I may be overwhelmed by your grace, so that I may be enthralled and gripped fully with this grace of God, so that I would remember that I'm new, that I'm brand new, that I'm not the old me, but I am new because of what you've done. This morning, I thought it would be appropriate for us, as we do on the first uh, Sunday of the month, to end our time by um, taking part in the Lord's Supper. So if you've already got your Lord's Supper cup, this is the time you can take it out. If you don't have it, uh, feel free to go out into the lobby. We have those available. But you know, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus told his disciples and told the church, do this in remembrance of me, realizing that we would be prone to forget. That we would, be, we would be prone to forget the marvelous grace of God. And so on that night before he goes to the cross, Jesus, with his disciples in that upper room, he takes two elements from the meal. And he gives them new meaning. First, he takes the bread. And he says, this bread is, symbolizes my broken body. Remember, he's telling us and his disciples on that day that sin has to be punished. That God cannot be a loving, holy God if sin is not punished. And so Jesus was saying, I'm going to the cross and I'm gonna take your punishment. But then Jesus took the cup and he says, this cup symbolizes my blood. We know from scripture, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or forgiveness of sin. And so not only was Jesus going to the cross to pay the penalty, but he was also going to the cross so that his blood could be shed to give us forgiveness. This is a glorious thing. And so this morning, we are going to take time to remember. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus and for all that you've done. And now in these moments, Father, help us to remember just what you've done for us how you died in our place and how you paid for our penalty and how you've given us forgiveness. Now, Lord, we take this bread and we take this cup grateful for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.